Hello, Ben. Hey, how's it going, dude? We're here. We did it. We did. We're both alive. First of all, congratulations on your thinness. You oh, thank look you. Slender and healthy. You look good. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Turns out, running away from my children for four months straight <laughs> will do that to you. I literally took up running just to get away from my three really? children. Just oh, going yeah. outside, just for some mind space. Well, it's L.A., man. You can't yeah. get outside unless you're actively exercising, or they come and arrest you. Oh, I could have looted a Footlocker, right? Then, then they would have. That would been okay. Do you run with a mask on? No. Does anybody yell at you? No. 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 What do you do? You go to a track? Like what do you do? No, I literally just run around on the streets, hoping yeah. that one day I will be hunted down by the rioters, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't have to go deal with my children screaming at me. But yeah, that's that's the that's the goal. Did you try to get healthier when COVID hit? Like, were you worried? And a little bit. It really wasn't about COVID. It was just I was eating out too much, and when oh. I was relegated to home, it was like I had to learn how to use the barbecue, which oh. I, I'd never learned how to use a barbecue actually. And then it turned out it was actually not that hard. So I don't know what I was doing for years. I got to give you some elk meat. Are you barbecuing right now? Uh, yeah. You still doing it? Yeah. All right, I'll give you some elk sausages. It's very well, we'll have easy. To, we have to do kosher, right? So I have to like, Oh, that's not I, kosher actually, at all. Well, we'll have to go get the elk and I'll have to actually like kill it myself. And Is that what you'd have to do? You'd have to get the elk and then you'd have to slice its throat or something like that? Oh, yeah. It's good times. What, how do, what's the logic behind that? So, I mean, not original. to get too fast into the biblical stuff, right. but uh, the, the original logic was that you were supposed to kill the animal in the most humane way was the idea. Now- do I know if it's the most humane way now? I have no idea. It's but... most certainly not, Ben. <laughs> okay, well. Because <laughs> you have to slice Take it up throat. with the rabbis, man. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I get it how back in the day, a very sharp knife g going through the throat would have been the most humane way because it's almost painless. And then the blood just sort of pours out and that's a wrap. Right. And you don't want the blood anyway because you're yeah. not allowed to eat blood in Judaism. So. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what do you do when you have a medium rare steak? I mean, you salt the steak really heavily. This is, why, this is why kosher meat's pretty salty. So if you go to a steakhouse, are you allowed to go to a steakhouse? Uh, a kosher steakhouse. There are kosher steakhouses. God, you're so deep in that world. I know, man. But you're a logical, intelligent guy. Does part of, <laughs> does every now and then— I like how you juxtapose those. <laughs> but does every now and then it fuck with your head? You're like, what is this? I mean, of course. And then when it, <laughs> I don't know there's a religious person alive I mean, who, who doesn't eventually go like, okay, it's a little weird, but all but, right. You, you got to embrace like, the system. You but you feel like for tradition and for just the whole Jewish culture, it's worth doing? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you, you live the lifestyle. And yeah. I feel like it ain't, it ain't that big a sacrifice to eat at particular restaurants. The restaurants are still good. Well, They've still got good kosher restaurants. One thing that we're seeing with society and, and culture in general, and one thing that sort of does support the idea of maintaining these sort of rigid disciplines, is that... When things start to slide just a little, you lose like a little, these little incremental steps, they slide and people go, oh God, what's the big deal? What do you care? And you're like, I see where this is going. Like I there's a, this is a, it's going down that way. This is not going to stop. It's sliding. Oh yeah. And it, you saw it in LA. I mean, yeah. I've, I've lived in LA my whole life and the, the move from LA being a pretty safe, Fairly nice city, suburban in orientation to just overrun with with horror shows is really it, it was a lot faster than I thought it would be. But it, it's sort of a great. You're right. It's a gradual decline, and then it's just off a cliff. Well, you started to see tents, and you didn't see them at all for decades. And then all of a sudden, I started seeing tents. I remember I was doing Fear Factor in Skid Row in the early 2000s. So we would film down there, and I'd be like, "This is crazy." Like, has anybody seen this? Does anybody know this? Because there was these homeless streets. Like, you would yep. go down these gigantic... And downtown L.A. back then, for people who don't live in L.A., you would think, oh, downtown's like downtown New York or downtown Cleveland. No. 
Downtown LA was a no man's land. Nothing's going on in downtown LA. It is now. Like Little there's bit. Yeah. well it was pre-COVID. <laughs> it was yeah. like there was some bars and there was some really cool upscale apartment buildings. It was kind of picking up. But uh, I took my family there before COVID, like a few, four months before COVID or so. We went to, we were going to go to, there's a famous donut place there. So we said, just a, one of the most goofy Sunday things, like, what do you guys want to do today? Let's go get donuts. So we went to downtown LA. Like, holy shit. Oh, yeah. Literally shit. Human <laughs> shit. On the streets. Everything smelled like piss. Bums everywhere. And I'm like, okay, stay close to me. Stay over here. If anybody comes near you, move, or cl move closer to me. Like, Jesus Christ. Like, this is crazy. Like, I don't want them to be freaked out, but I'm like, this is nuts. Well, the thing is that that sort of disaster area stuff in L.A. was sort of localized, right? It really, yes. like, I worked in the LADA's office for a summer when I was when I was in law school. It's been, like, 2007, so it was a while ago. And I remember they had a giant tent city, and you had to walk from the car. They made you park a mile away and walk it, and so you were walking through Skid Row. And it's like, okay, well, this, this is really terrible, and honestly, I feel bad for these people because I don't think the best solution for people who are drug addicted or mentally ill is to live on the street, and a heavy percentage of people who are homeless are drug addicted or mentally ill. But, you know, is it... For, for people who are living in the suburbs, like, this is at least localized. It's not, like, reaching right. into your life. And then over the past 13 years, like, I live in a pretty decent suburban area. And I'm seeing, like, open needles on the street. Mm. Walked out of my house one day. There's just a guy lying face down in the gutter like Edgar Allan Poe. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, th this, is, this is falling apart ra rather quickly. What do you think caused the slide or the expansion of the slide? Because I agree with you that it was very – it was – very isolated. Skid Row was very isolated. Downtown LA was very, I, I remember one time we were filming in downtown LA and we were on a gurney or I guess that's what you call, one of those things called where, you, where it lifts up. Oh. Uh, anyway, we were yeah. filming some Fear Factor stunt and as we got up, we could see people smoking crack. And I go, oh, look, there's people smoking crack right there. And the, the guests on the show, like a lot of them, they fly from all over the country and they're like, is that real? They're really smoking crack? I'm like, that's crack. That's a homeless person smoking crack. Welcome to LA. It's right there. <laughs> but I didn't feel bad about it. I felt like, look, it's unfortunate, but this is not like indicative of all of LA. We're just in a shitty spot because it's really cheap to film here. Right. So here you go. You know, you got a little gift. You get to see some weird shit <laughs> while you're here. But I, I didn't I didn't think it was ever going to get to the point where you're on like Winnetka off the one oh one and there's eighty fucking tents and they put a porta potty there. They put a porta potty hey, we're, there. We're for doing the we're doing people. real building and real development here in Los <laughs> Angeles. Not apartment buildings. We got some porta potties. We put a, every underpass shall have a porta potty, thanks to Mayor Eric Garcetti. You pay attention to politics far more than I do. And and, and law enforcement and all that. What happened? How did it get to this? Well, on this particular problem, this actually started with a bunch of lawsuits. So the LAPD used to have the authority to move people's shit if it was on the sidewalk. And if people had a bunch of stuff that was on the sidewalk and they were just camping out there, the LAPD could come and they could take their stuff away and they could rouse them or they could arrest them for trespass or for loitering. Uh, and then the ACLU actually sued and they said that this is a violation of people's personal property. Oh, and ACLU, the courts, you do such good work sometimes. <laughs> and, and the courts ruled that you actually are not allowed to move people's stuff, that that's actually personal property, even though it's in a public area. And then they got a ruling from a court that you're allowed to live in your car because for a while you weren't allowed to live in your car and then it was you're allowed to live in your car. So now you're basically allowed to leave your stuff on the sidewalk and the police are not allowed to move it and you're allowed to live in your car. And then there was this sort of equity movement that said, okay, well, they do it in business districts, but wh why can't they do it in like more suburban areas? Why can't they just move into nicer areas? After all, if there's misery, it should be equally spread across the city. And, and that's kind of what you've seen. I mean, this is, there've been so many breaking points over the last year in the city. And for me, for me and my wife, I mean, we looked at the rioting 
And they shut down the entire city at 6 p.m. It's a county of 12 million people. And they shut down the entire county so that douchebags could run around shattering windows, pretending that they were standing up for social justice. They shut down Beverly Hills at 1 p.m. They shut down Rodeo Drive at 1 p.m. so that people could run up and down Rodeo Drive talking about how capitalism sucks while tweeting from their iPhone. While stealing... Stealing Nikes. You know, there was two moments where I was like, this is a real opportunity for us to come together. And one of them was the moment the lockdown happened. It it felt to me very similar to right after 9-11, where everybody was confronted with their own mortality. Like, holy shit. Like, we we might be on the verge of a pandemic, like in a movie, where a lot of the people we know die. And here... We, we have to be kind to each other. We have to be, this is what's important. Family's important. And I remember thinking, I've never been closer to my family, never been closer to my friends. We were calling each other all the time. We were, we were, it was like, it was a, there, was, there was real hope in that. I was like, if we get through this, we're going to be tighter. We're going to know what means something, what counts. It does, fuck stand-up comedy, fuck everything else, man. What, what's important is love and friendship. Then it started to get angry. Mm-hmm. It, it only took like three or four weeks where people started getting like they were scared. So people started getting shittier with each other online. And then I basically swore off Twitter. Yep. I was like, this is just too toxic and too hostile. The second moment where I thought we had the opportunity to come together was George Floyd. So George Floyd died. And all of a sudden, you have these Black Lives Matter protests, and and I'm like, maybe we can finally make a dent on racism. Maybe we can finally make a dent in police brutality. Maybe this is a moment where we can come together and realize what's important. It's community, solidarity, that we're we're all in this together. Like, this is crazy. And then the cops need to be reformed. Like, they can't live like, and maybe we should take into account PTSD. Maybe we should take into account the fact that these fucking guys are pulling up on people every day that might shoot them in the face. They might never be able to see their family and their kids. Let's rework this. Let's think this shit through. Yeah. Nope. And then chaos. And then all of a sudden it became... Like what we saw yesterday where they're breaking into Amazon Go in Seattle. Like that fucking guy owns the Washington Post. He owns the most <laughs> left-wing newspaper in America. And you're like, not good enough. Well, you saw they set up a, like a fake guillotine outside of Bezos' house in Washington, D.C. I, it's insane. And it's, it's just it's madness. He's I, I too totally, rich. I totally agree with you, by the way. Like when, when, the, when COVID happened, I thought, I can't really see how we're going to split in partisan fashion over this thing. Right. Like everybody wants to live. And everybody would also like to eventually get back to regular life. And the better we can live, the better we can get back to regular life. So it seems like, okay, we're on board. When it came to the lockdowns, the original lockdowns, I was like, okay, I'm on board. You know, I'm, I'm taking this thing really seriously. I've got parents in their, in their 60s. I feel like you know, I'm in good health. I'm, I'm fairly young. I'm 36. But for my parents, I don't, I don't want my parents getting this thing. And so we're still taking this thing real seriously. I mean, I'm still wearing a mask around to public places. And I think people should. I think yes. that's a responsible thing to do. But it, it immediately turned into, who can we blame for this? Who can we blame? Who's doing it wrong? And yeah. it seems like there were only like a couple of things that you really can do that are obviously wrong. Like nobody has a good solution on this thing. Okay, it ravaged Italy. It ravaged Spain. It, it ravaged New York. Like, there, there are a couple things you shouldn't do. Don't take the olds and send them back into the nursing homes with COVID, right? I mean, that's, right. that's like an obvious one. But beyond that, like, just staying away from each other and socially distancing and wearing, like, this is all kind of commonsensical stuff that people have known since the flu pandemic of 1918. Like, nothing, right. nothing has really changed. And yet it immediately turned into, who can we blame? Who's, who's to blame for all these dead people? Maybe it's Ron DeSantis or maybe it's Cuomo. Like, who, who can we blame? So that was terrible. And then on the Floyd stuff, I had the same feelings. Like, I don't know a single human being who watched that tape and didn't think, okay, that guy deserves to go to jail. 
Chauvin, right? The, the officer in that case, in the George Floyd Who case. Who didn't think that, yeah. I, everyone yeah. I know, yeah, every that. single yes. person was like, yeah, that's that's real bad. Like, that's, and yeah. cops, like, I know tons of yes. cops. I'm friendly with tons of cops. And not one of them was like, yeah, that's good police procedure. I'm glad he did that. Like, no one thought that. And so when people are like, okay, well, we're going to look at police brutality. Maybe we'll take a look at qualified immunity. Maybe we'll take a look at police unions and the kind of restrictive covenants that they have with the cities and, and how we make sure that everybody knows who the bad cops are so they can't get hired at different places. Like, all those are solutions. But- it quickly turned from, well, we don't want to talk about solutions. Solutions are a bad idea. What we need to do is we need to shout about everything we can possibly imagine all at once. And you know what? Instead, let's have a conversation about, like, was George Washington a bad guy? Let's have a conversation instead about, like, just completely defunding the police. We want to have, like, a responsible conversation about things that make sense. We'll talk about, like, what if we just got rid of the police? How, How crazy about that? is that discussion? That discussion, uh, when, when, when people were really saying defund the police, I'm like, cooler heads will prevail. But they're going to realize. And I think they're realizing it now in New York City. I mean, New York City has had record crime, record homicides. Who it's, would have thought? Who would have thought? <laughs> de Blasio is, I mean, I would have never, I would have never imagined I would look at Garcetti and go, well, he's better. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, look at, I look at Garcetti and I look at de Blasio. I'm like, Garcetti, I have him over my house for dinner. He's way better oh, yeah, than that de, weird, de Blasio. Giant is groundhog murderer. So yeah. weird. He's so. You can have protests, but only Black Lives Matter protests. That one was. That, that was. That was a solid. You know. That that was. That may have been the moment when I realized that we were all effed. That, right. It was the moment when, like, we're in the middle of a global pandemic with yes. hundreds of thousands of people dead, and an entire swath of our media and health elites just decided randomly that if you were protesting against lockdown, you were very bad, right? Then you were a racist and you were going to get people killed and you should wear a mask. And I was like, well, if you're, pro I sort of agree with the mask thing. Like, yeah, yes. okay. And then you get millions of people in the streets yelling at each other and breathing on each other and spitting on each other. And you got health professionals on TV being like, well, racism is a public health threat. I guess that you can do that now. It's like, well, what the? I know people who died in the hospital of COVID and their family could not visit them. Yes. Like they literally died alone in the hospital of COVID and family could not visit them. And you're telling me that it's deeply important that we have like dance lines. This was stuff happening at rallies, like dance lines in the streets in New York to fight racism. That's deeply important. But a daughter being able to visit her dad before he dies, that's not important. Come I on, am, what, what bullshit? I am for your freedom to protest. I'm 100% for your freedom to protest. I'm also for your freedom to go to the gym. I'm also for your freedom to go to a comedy club if you so choose. I'm for your freedom to go to a restaurant. Look, they figured out how to do restaurants in a lot of places. The, the servers wear masks and many of them wear face shields. You distance the tables apart from each other. You do temperature checks. You take people's names and addresses down when they enter so that if anybody gets sick, if there's any sort of kind, and, they, and they've been able to do this. No, this is right. The, the vectors of transmission are typically closed areas, people in solid proximity with each other for long periods of time. Yes. Right? That, that's the stuff where people are getting this stuff. And I, yeah. I, I, I trust most Americans not, like, some Americans are going to be dumbasses. Some people are just dumbasses. Oh, there's a lot of videos. I don't oh, know yeah. if you watch YouTube. There's uh, plenty of Karens out there. Uh, How sad is it if your name is Karen and you're a good person? Uh, you're, All the good Karens done, right? out there. I, I'm sorry, ladies. <laughs> I'm really sorry. <laughs> but it's, like, this, this is a, I made this point online. I got shellacked for it. But I was pointing out that most Americans are wearing masks right now. By polling yeah. data, 59% of Americans say that they always wear a mask when they leave the house. And if you look at the map of mask wearing, across the board, in the places where there are the most cases, people are wearing masks. That's not, I wasn't saying masks don't work. I wear a mask. I think that the evidence shows that they do something. We don't know that they're not like full protective. They're, the cloth masks are not as effective as surgical masks, which are not as effective as N95s. But wear a mask, good. The, the point that I was making is people are acting in fairly rational fashion. Meaning if you think COVID is like around you, you're wearing a mask and you're socially distancing. 
So this this idea that Gavin Newsom knows best how you ought to live your life, like I, I got some trouble with that, especially because California saw the same uptick as Texas and Florida, and California never opened. I mean, we've been here the whole time. California never really opened. Well, we were doing pretty good up until the protests. Yeah, Everything true. seemed like it was on an uptick. The comedy store was talking to them about becoming an essential business and, and opening up because they had opened up bars and they had opened up restaurants. And they didn't really have a designation for comedy clubs. They, they sort of co- co- talked about it as a live performance venue. But then that puts comedy clubs at the same place as the Staples Center, which sounds crazy, right? right? So they're like, listen, we can do this. We can just have half capacity, temperature checks, do it right. They're doing it right in a lot of places all over the country. We can do this. The audience has to wear masks. This is totally doable. And so they were right about to do that. And then post, this other thing is, we were trying to figure out, like, is it protests only? I think it's bars, too. Yeah. The thing about bars is close talk. People are and loud drunk. talk, yeah. Yeah, they're drunk and they're on top of each other. I think bars probably it's had a churches, significant uptick. Right, lot, yes. lots of singing, lots of mm-hmm. lots of vocalizing. Yeah. Right, churches and synagogues were, yeah. were a main vector for this. Yeah, yeah, I mean, but again, these are all things that are fairly commonsensical and we can agree on, and yet we're beating the hell out of each other over yeah. this stuff, and there's this suggestion, we know what to do. If only we just did it, this would stop. It's not going to stop. Okay, it's not going to stop. It's a, it's a very transmissible disease. We don't have a vaccine. As long as people are out there, it's going to continue to pass. Wear a mask if you're in close proximity with others, and that's pretty much it. The and hospitals the, are getting better at this, thank God. The, yes, they are. And the crazy thing was that they were saying, like, the you can only protest if it's a Black Lives yeah, Matter protest. Insane. What about a protest for increasing your immunity? What about a protest for educating people to the, the, the techniques and the strategies for increasing your immune system. It is, there are, they're out there. And there's no discussion about this amongst health professionals, excuse me, amongst uh, politicians. If you listen to health professionals, people that really understand the human body, they'll tell you there's a lot of strategies. There's a lot of things you could do. First of all, eliminate alcohol, eliminate caffeine, eliminate sugar, eliminate all the bullshit in your diet. Start taking vitamin supplements. Get outside. Get some vitamin D. Get get your body healthy. Exercise. Do do all these things, and you will increase your immune system. You increase your body's health. You don't hear a word of that. All of it is just stay inside. Lock. You know we have to stay apart to keep everybody safe. And God damn, the, the, the number one vector for transmission remains the home. Right, that, that's still the number sure. one vector in every society is the home. People going home and giving it to each other. And mm-hmm. when they, I remember for for me, one of the breaking points in L.A. was was when they decided they were going to shut down all open areas. They're going to shut down all the parks. They're going to shut down all the right. beaches. And I was like, what is this? Well, not what only that, it goes this? against science because right. there's been papers that have been studied that show that the, this virus dies almost instantaneously when it's ex- exposed to sunlight or even artificial sunlight. Yeah, it, none of it makes any sense. But it does feel like, bottom line, there were a bunch of gaps in American society, and then a bad thing happened, and all everything just sort of fell right. apart. It was, it was sort of like a house of cards, and then there's a little bit of weight put right on top of the yeah. house of cards, and everything just collapsed in on itself. Well, people are panicking. You know, they're getting scared, and then the economy's collapsing. So the economy collapsing at the same time as the George Floyd protests led people to start looting. And then people that didn't give a fuck about George Floyd or Black Lives Matter were just stealing shit. And then this police was letting them steal shit. They were standing down in Beverly Hills and Santa Monica, literally cops standing there and, while people were and smashing the media, doors. I gotta say, the media coverage of this stuff is just awful. The, me- the media were cheering this stuff on. I mean, they were simultaneously making two arguments that conflict with each other. One was, these are mostly peaceful protests. First of all, mostly peaceful is the most, it's, it's the loosest, most loosely defined, arbitrarily applied term in history. Well, O.J. Simpson was mostly people. peaceful that night. O.J. Simpson was mostly peaceful that night. For like That's an hour true. 15, he was really not peaceful. But for the other 
hours between sunset and sunrise, he was unbelievably peaceful. Like, I've never heard this term before where a protest turns into a vast riot, you know, wrecking all of Melrose. And everybody's like, well, it was mostly peaceful. Well, what the, what is that? <laughs> what is so that? True. So, if, so here, how about this? Yeah. How about you either say that the protesters and looters are two different groups of people and we treat them differently. If you're right. protesting, that's First Amendment activity. The minute you shatter a store window, you go to jail. Right. Yes. That's the way they should run. Agreed. Or alternatively, if it's if you if you're saying they're the same group, then they need to be treated as lawbreakers. So I, I believe the first I believe if you're a protester, yeah. you should be protesting. If you're a looter and a rioter, then you should go to jail. But, but the media refuse to make that distinction. And then they act like the cops are the bad guys when they come in to, to arrest people who are violating the law. I think it's in Portland right now. They're trying to burn down the damn courthouse. Yeah. And the and the feds come in and start arresting people. And people are like this is the Gestapo. It's like, OK, speaking as one of the tribe, let me say this is not like the Gestapo. Okay, like the, the Gestapo was not famous for rolling up on people and then charging them. And then if they didn't have a charge, releasing them. That wasn't like the Gestapo's thing. Like, I, I'm sorry, but you decided that you wanted to throw a firebomb at the, at the federal courthouse. And your local mayor said he wasn't going to let the police do anything. And so DHS came in and arrested you. Tough shit. I mean, like, I'm sorry. That's At some point, somebody's got to restore some semblance of law and order here. Well, it's it's a weird situation because I don't exactly understand why they're attacking the courthouse. I don't exactly understand why they're smashing the windows at Amazon Go. It's, it's, it's Steve Martin, right? They, they, they must hate these paint cans. Right? Like from, from the jerk, right? <laughs> but it's, it's, it, it went from this to the literally tear down the structure of society. Well, this, this is where we get into sort of the deep philosophy point. And this is, this is actually really the, the, the biggest problem right now on the racism point is the shifting definition of racism. So I had the unfortunate experience of actually reading one of the best-selling books in the country, Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility. And let me just tell you, a greater pile of horseshit has never been produced by a bevy of horses. It is an awful book, and it is basically rooted in the same theory as Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. The, the basic definition of racism changes in this theory. So racism, you and I were sitting here discussing racism, and the way I define racism is probably the same way you define racism. You believe in the inferiority or superiority of a group based on race of an individual based on their membership in that group too, right? That would be racism. That's I race. believe that you're inferior yes. or you're superior based on your race. End of story, right? That's, that's, racism. that's racism. So Robin DiAngelo and Ibram Kendi redefine racism to mean any societal structure that results in a racial inequality is itself racist. So any structure that results in a not exact proportion between whites and blacks- Does that make the NBA racist? Exactly, exactly. The answer is kind of yes, except that the NBA is not racist because obviously it benefits black people, right? I mean, now, Does the NBA is mean? not racist in, except it's because it's a meritocracy is the reason the NBA is not racist. Right. But Robin D'Angelo and Kendi both suggest that meritocracy is an aspect of whiteness. They say that meritocracy and individual are aspects of whiteness because these institutions, things like meritocracy and individualism and not seeing people's colors, these just reinforce hierarchies that end with disparate outcomes. And so what they say is in order to be anti-racist, you have to want to tear down the entire system. They literally say this. I'm not, I'm not really, I know that I'm not misidentifying the argument because, I've, again, I've read their books. The, the basic notion that to be anti-racist, you have to tear down free markets or you have to tear down free speech or you have to. And what that means is, of course, that anytime there's rioting and looting, that's really just an expression of outrage at the broader American system. And so it justifies that sort of stuff. This is why you saw Nicole Hannah-Jones, the de facto editor of the... New York Times, 1619 Project lady, tweeting out that she appreciated that people were calling these the 1619 riots. Because once you say America is 
rooted in slavery and rooted in evil and a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad place, then robbing a shop is just the latest iteration of you fighting the system. Explain the 1619 correlation to people, if you would. Sure. So the 1619 Project is, is something put forward by the New York Times. It's not good history. There are four Pulitzer Prize winning historians who have said this is not good history. The basic argument is the United States was not founded in 1776 with the principles of the Declaration of Independence. The, count, the country was actually founded in 1619 with the importation of African slaves to American shores because that's when the first African slave arrived in the United States was 1619. So the idea is that the entire history of America is a history of a system that is endemically white supremacist and that all of the Declaration of Independence is basically a lie, that the principles of all men are created equal. That was a lie when it was written and it's a lie now, that the idea that we have rights that preexist government, that's a lie. All of these things are lies. The Constitution was built in order to enshrine white supremacy. And no evolution has taken place. So they, don't, they, they, they essentially make the argument that from 1619 to 2020 is a continuum. Racism has gone underground a little bit, but it's still there and it's still, it's still implicit in all of our systems. So the 1619 Project has essays blaming literally everything on racism. So disparities in maternal mortality between black women and white women, which, by the way, exist in Europe and in Canada. That's due to American racism. Traffic patterns in the United States is due to systematic American racism. Every racial disparity is attributable to a system that was rooted in slavery. Now, the traditional notion of America is that America was founded in 1776 and that the story of America is that America did tolerate the great original sin of slavery up until the Civil War and then tolerated Jim Crow up until the civil rights movement of the 1960s. And that is a great stain and a blot on America. But the story of America is trying to fulfill the promises of the Declaration of Independence over time, make those promises available to everybody. And this isn't my argument. This is Martin Luther King Jr.'s argument when he talks on the, in the March in Washington about fulfilling the promissory note of the Declaration of Independence. He says, we're here to cash the check, right? You issued us the check, and then you didn't let black Americans be Americans. We're here to cash the check. This is the argument Frederick Douglass, the freed slave, makes in 1852. He makes a famous speech before slavery is ended. And he says, July 4th doesn't mean anything to black Americans because we're not included in the bargain. Include us in the bargain. The story of America is the Declaration of Independence, those principles that we should all basically still agree on because they're pretty good principles. Free speech, free assembly, all the things you see in the Constitution. That those things brought about greater freedom and prosperity than anything else and helped us overcome that sins that are present in all human societies and were present in the United States in extreme ways as well. But that's the, that's the counter narrative, right? The 1619 Project says that all that was basically nonsense and that America is just a, a history of whites keeping blacks down and that no progress has essentially been made. If there is progress, it's mostly a lie. And so every disparity now can be attributed to historic disparities between white and black. Is there middle ground? Do, so if we look at 1776 and we look at the Declaration of Independence and we look at America today in 2020 w w There clearly is some impact in the echoes of slavery and then after that Jim Crow There's clearly some impact in these deeply impoverished communities that don't seem to advance Yes, so the, to, to, to make the argument about institutional racism, there, there's a couple ways you can read this. When people say systemic racism or institutional racism, I usually ask them to be a little more specific in what they mean because there are a few ways you can read that. One is history has impact. Of course that's true, right? That's true for everybody. It's true in your family history. Right? If you have a grandfather who went, to, who went to prison on a particular charge, that leads to poverty right. for your parents, which led to more poverty for you, right? People have histories. Those histories are embedded in their life experiences, and that's true for societies as well. All of that is for sure true. Then there's the question as to whether the institutions today are racist. And that's not quite the same thing, right? Because history has consequences is not the same thing as saying the rules today are racist. Because the rules today are not racist, actually. The rules today are quite not racist. 
So, but historically, it's fairly recent. If you go from the civil rights movement to 2020, we're really not talking about that much time. We're talking three about generations, fifty but plus years, sixty years. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's it, fifty but, plus. Right, in, but in the but, world of you know, history, in the vast span of human history, it's, it's not very a very small amount of time. Right. So clearly, there's some impact of both racism Absolutely. and then Jim Crow laws. So. That that's where I'm saying there's a middle ground. Yeah, and and it's indem- it, it is important for people on my side of the aisle, conservatives, to acknowledge and recognize the importance of of history in people's living situations now, and it's important for people on the other side of the aisle to at the same time not attribute every single thing to history because right. But people isn't there born- always something like that? There's always like extremes on each position and the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Yeah, but I don't think that it lies as far in in the dead center of that as people I think want it to. Mm. What I mean by that is the problems that have plagued communities in the United States, not just the black community in the United States, but problems of racism or problems of sexism. The way those get alleviated is people making better choices over time. Right? That is the problem that that's the way that those issues get alleviated. When Jews arrived in the United States in the in the early 20th century to talk of my people, when they when they came they were impoverished. They didn't speak the language. They were banned from country clubs. There was open discrimination against them. They were banned from Harvard, right? Harvard Law School had quotas on Jews. The, the way to fight against that is to make good decisions. And so the, you fight against the system to make sure that the system has rules that apply equally to everyone. Right, but, but you clearly see that there's a big difference between people coming over here willingly and doing so in order to better their lives versus someone whose ancestors were dragged over here to be sold as property. And then dealing with the repercussions of that being your family history and red line laws and all the other things that were put in place to sort of keep them in very specific areas, which to this day remain crime-ridden, gang-ridden, deeply impoverished communities. Well, that's true. But the question is how much of that is historic redlining and how much of that is an 18-year-old kid today deciding to pick up a gun and shoot somebody? But how much of that 18-year-old kid today deciding to pick up a gun and shoot somebody is based on him growing up in this fucked up environment where that's what he models, where everything around him is crime and gangs and you imitate your atmosphere, which what all humans do. Right. But the answer is there's only one way to break that chain. What, what way is that? That way is to not pick up a gun and shoot somebody. I think that's that, a simplistic way of looking at it if you're on the outside of that community and you're not one of those 18-year-old kids that grows up with the incredible influence of all the people around him and that's all you see and that's all you know. Well, but the problem is the only way that's going to be the thing that your kid doesn't know is for you not to do it. At some point, personal agency has to come in. Some, it does, because but the, education, education and, and teaching them about personal agency and, and letting them understand that there is a way out of this and that the path that they see being replicated over and over again by these people that wind up dying young, that wind up going to jail, that there are other options. There's a lot of kids that never get that other information. Or if they get it, they get little blips of it. But the vast majority of the information, the vast majority of the influence they get is terrible. Well, the, the, I, I totally agree with this. And this is why I think the worst thing that you can say to a kid is you're born behind the eight ball and no matter what you do, you're not going to succeed. Yes, right? That's literally the worst thing you can say to a kid. What you should be saying is look at how your grandfather was born behind the eight ball and look how hard he had to work in order to get ahead. And if, look at all the opportunities. That's true, though. But if your grandfather wasn't ahead, didn't get ahead, if your grandfather was in and out of jail, if your father was in and out of jail, if everyone around you is like that, if there's literally no influence that's positive in your life, the idea of saying to a kid like that, hey, don't pick up a gun and shoot somebody, 
it's way that's way too simplistic a version of of their future in my in my well i mean I, the problem is i don't see an alternative solution right? i think when you're talking about solutions solu- i think an alternative solution is there has to be some sort of large scale intervention in these communities to do something about what 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 has already been set in motion and the momentum that keeps continuing decade after decade. That, that, I don't prob- know what could be done. Uh, well, but that, that's the problem is that I think that a lot of the solutions that have been proposed have already been tried. Meaning like that, for ex- okay, so for example, LBJ thought that the way to alleviate a lot of these inequalities was the war on poverty. And he, he openly talked about this. He talked about, he gave a speech very famously in which he said, we're trying to guarantee equality of outcome, not just equality of opportunity, equality of outcome. And you can't hold the race where somebody is starting 20 yards behind mm-hmm. and then fire the gun and say, okay, then it's an equal race, right. right? So you have to get the person who's 20 yards behind to actually get up to the starting line so that they're equal. And so the idea was, we're going to fight this war on poverty and alleviate poverty largely through transfer payments and, and through the government taking a forcible step in favor of alleviating people's lives. We've now spent $22 trillion in the war on poverty, and we have about the same number of black Americans living under the poverty line as we're living under the poverty line by the late 70s. The, the, the real issues that, that, are inter, that, are, that are creating intergenerational poverty, everyone knows this, but it remains true. The number one predictor of intergenerational poverty in the United States remains single motherhood. The single motherhood rate in the black community was 20% in 1960. It is upward of 70% today. That's not unique to the black community, by the way. It's true in the white community as well. The fi- 5% of white kids were born out of wedlock in 1960. Today, it's upward of 40%. That is not, something has happened, and it is not a matter of increased racism. That's not happening because of increased racism, right? That that is happening because there's been a cultural change that does not place tremendous emphasis for black or white or for anybody on personal responsibility and personal agency. There needs to be a mindset change. We do this, by the way, in all other areas of American life, except for the most important decisions. In the area of sports, nobody does this routine. In the, this is a point Shelby Steele makes. In the area of sports, if a kid is not does not have a good jump shot, nobody says to him, you know what, you don't have a good jump shot because your father didn't have a good jump shot, his grandfather didn't have a good jump shot, and the game is biased against you. We say, okay, if you want to be on the team, you're going to have to learn to shoot a jump shot. Right? That, that right, sounds harsh. That sounds you, bad. But, but sports are different. And here's why sports are different. Because sports, you enter them independently of your culture. You, 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 you base what you're trying to do on the parameters of the rules – and the people that you're competing against. That's how you look at it. So you, whatever culture you're from, you you walk into this new thing with this very rigid set of rules. I don't think white people or Jews or Asians have a monopoly on valuing education or a monopoly on hard work or punctuality or anything. I think that black people have exactly the the same capacity as any people of any other race to do all of these things. And those are the preconditions for success. So you either meet them or you don't. I mean, that, right. that's true for everybody. But don't, For success. But don't you think that a lot of that is predicated on the environment that you develop in and the people that you're around and the, the lives that you imitate and the influences sure. that you have around you? Someone has to do something to influence those kids in a different way. Look, I was very fortunate when I was young that I discovered martial arts, and it, it kept me from being what I could have potentially been a, a bad kid. I, it, it gave me something to focus on. There's, and, and I didn't grow up in a bad environment, but it wasn't the best. There's a lot of people out there that grow up in horrific environments, and they never have that thing. They never have something. They, they don't have a father around, or they don't have a mother around, or whatever, whatever bad influences they have are overwhelming. And they, they don't—it's it's very difficult 
for someone to just, air quotes, get their shit together. It's very difficult. For sure. That's why, to this day, there's so many books about losing weight. <laughs> Don't you think everybody wants to lose weight that's fat? They do. They, everybody who's fat wants to be thin. They do. But it's fucking hard. For sure. And that's nothing in but, comparison to changing your whole life. But, the, but you would say about somebody losing weight, you know what's not useful here is lamenting how bad your family has had it with regard to losing weight. Like, at a certain point, if you want to lose the weight, you got to figure out a way to lose the weight. That's true, now, but we this could... is based on the information that I have. I have this vast scope of information that I've been able to absorb. If you're in these isolated environments and everyone around you is involved in gangs and crime and drugs, it's very difficult to model yourself after something that you don't see in real life. Well, uh, so totally true. Totally true. And that's why, again, more information needs to get into areas. I agree with a lot of the opportunities that need to be provided by education. Getting people to be educated outside their local public school would be a good change. I mean, yes. Being able to like move outside your crap local public school and, and go best, somewhere else would be good. The best influences for kids that grow up in these environments seem to be people that have gotten out and then come back and talk to them. Right. And tell them how to do it. But and none this, of this, this has can to do, be done. But to go back to the original conversation, none uh -huh. of this has to do with telling kids that you live in an evil country that's seeking to keep you down. Well, maybe not, but there there has been a very small amount of emphasis placed on taking these impoverished communities and figure out how to engineer them out of the situation. Well, Social I don't think that's true. I, so I don't really? think that's true. Yeah, I mean, the amount that we've spent on a federal level and a state level on educational programs and poverty programs. Over time. But, but like, no, on it, a on it, a year to year level, I mean these are these are enormous quantities of money. This is not a this is not really a money problem. It really is not a money problem in just terms of you could sign everybody a check tomorrow, right? The, the predicate, so the the predicate for the slavery reparations movement is exactly this: sign everybody a eighty thousand dollar check, and the problem will be alleviated. No, it won't. I, I, don't, I don't think I don't that's, think, I think that's I right. I think they'll spend the eighty thousand dollars and they'll be right back where they started from. I, but I do think that there is an argument that there can be some way of engineering, whether it's community centers or education or doing something differently in these places to chip away at this problem. I, so on that stuff, we totally agree. The only point that I'm making about the 1619 Project is mm -hmm. when you teach people that they are the victims of a society, it makes it very difficult for them to succeed. The story of, of black America should be a story of unbelievably brave people triumphing over systems that sucked. Right? I mean, that, that is the story of black America. Most black Americans do not live under the poverty line in the United States. There's a huge black middle class. Okay, There's a black upper class, too. Yes, there is. Let's, let's simplify this if we can. Sure. If Ben Shapiro is the king of the world, how do you fix Baltimore? How do you fix Detroit? How do you fix south side of Chicago? Okay, so here's the unpopular view, but it happens to be empirically correct. The first thing you have to do is you have to load the place with police. You got to load the place with police because you have to stop crime. Once you stop crime then businesses are happy to invest in those areas. You're not going to get businesses to invest in those areas and provide jobs unless the crime is gone. Mm -hmm. you need, in fact, one of the reasons that you have such a vast differential in racial crime in the United States is because of white racism. And this is a point that Jane Levy, writer for the LA Times, has made. She wrote a book called Ghetto Side, and she points out that the reason that black crime was so high in the early 20th century and late 19th century is because basically white communities said to black communities, you're on your own, right? Enjoy. And so the crime rates ended up spiking because there were no police there. You have to make sure that law-abiding people are protected, that law-abiding businesses are protected, that people want to live there, that people want to invest there. You have to have a reestablishment of faith in churches, right? You need social institutions outside of government that are promoting things like family. Values, you, yeah. need, you need more, the, one of the reasons you need more companies in these areas is they can offer educational opportunities to kids, internships, 
deals to go to college and then come back and work for us for a couple of years. Right? You need an opportunity, the same way that opportunity is built anywhere else on earth. You need to provide a safe space for business to work and for free speech to flourish and for education to be valued. You need to go in, you need to make clear to every kid, if you graduate high school, then you will have a shot at college, which by the way is 100% true today. Right? If you're a black kid and you graduate high school with any level of achievement, you will have a very solid shot of at least going to a community college. And if you score per, even decently on the SATs of going to a very high level college, right? Affirmative action programs are extraordinarily common across the United States. But the, the first message is, we are going to ensure that law and order prevail here, a safe space for life, liberty, and property, and, and ownership of private property. And we are going to make sure that you as a law-abiding citizen have the opportunity to succeed. Because the biggest obstacle to young black kids growing up in the inner city, again, is not history. It is in the moment, the drugs, the crime, the fact that there are no fathers in a lot of these areas. Roland Fryer, black professor at Harvard, he's done excellent work showing that actually the number one factor in allowing kids to, to rise is not even having a father in the home. It's how many fathers there are generally in a community. Mm. So you can, you can have a single mom, but if there are a lot of other male father figures around, that helps fill in the gap. Right? These, these are practical things. Giving kids the ability to pick the school they go to so they don't have to go to the local crappy public school if it's a local crappy public school would be a solution here. But this all starts with the notion that it is not racist in the slightest to suggest that law and order have to prevail and that law-abiding people should be protected in their exercise of their rights. I think you're 100% right on that. And I think although that might be an unpopular opinion, I agree with you. I think that is very important. Now, what do you do in this environment when you look at the way people distrust the police now? In particular, I mean, I mean I've been reading stories about Cops going to Five Guys Burgers and they, they can't get served because people won't serve yep. cops. And this idea that all cops are bad. And this is a, a really, really disturbing perspective to me because you're seeing what's happening right now in Chicago. You're seeing what's happening right now in New York where you have this massive uptick in violent crime because it's perceived that the police presence has been dim diminished greatly. So how do you reaffirm the trust in, in, in law enforcement and what do you do to reform law enforcement? Because clearly there are some people that are cops that should not be cops. Yes, yeah, so there are a few things that you can do right off the bat and that people right, left, and center have sort of talked about. And one of them is that you can abridge qualified immunity in certain areas. So qualified immunity is the idea that you're not liable to civil suit if you don't do something bad that has specifically had a precedent in law. So you could do something bad, but as long as nobody else has done the same exact bad thing before, you're not subjected to civil liability. You could, you could so? curb that. Explain that it's, it's a little complicated. So qualified immunity generally means that if I do something bad, then as a police officer, if I act within the scope of my general reasonable authority, you can't uh -huh. sue me for it. The actual way if that you do something bad, what if you shoot somebody while you're operating? Like right. Like so so the, the the reason that qualified immunity, as currently understood under Supreme Court doctrine, is too broad, is because that the, the standard used to be you would have to act as a reasonable police officer. If you acted as a reasonable police officer and you took a, a reasonable action, right? somebody went for their waistband, they had an object in there, you didn't know mm -hmm. if it was a gun, you shot them, right? you wouldn't presumably be suable because that's still reasonable. You track a guy down, you shoot him in the back, you know, and, and then you plant a gun on him, that presumably would be suable, right? He'd be right. personally liable. I understand what you're so the, 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 the way that Supreme Court has done this is they broaden qualified immunity to such an extent that you can still, bottom line, is you can still get away with some bad stuff and not be sued for it. So that needs to be curbed. That's one thing. Second, police union contracts need to be utterly redone across the country. Police union contracts right now protect a lot of bad cops, right? But because the police unions are designed to protect the members, the members of the union, just like any other union. Yeah. And so what that means is that 
police unions, I'm, I'm not a fan of public sector unions generally, um, but police unions need to be abridged in their ability to protect cops who do something wrong. Third, you need to have a national registry of cops who are disciplined for violation of procedure so that they can't just leave LAPD and then go work for a Ferguson PD right. or something. Those are some easy things that you could do right off the bat. But the, the biggest thing right now, the biggest factor in terms of lack of faith between police and, and citizens really is the media because there's been a lot of talk about the racial constituency of, of police forces. The, the majority of the LAPD is minority. The majority of the Baltimore PD is minority. I believe that a huge percentage of the, of the Chicago PD is minority. So it really is not about you know lots of white cops in black neighborhoods. In Baltimore, it's a lot of black cops in black neighborhoods. And that has not solved the problem of people mistrusting the police on an endemic level. Well, it's an inherently difficult job. It's a, it's a rotten job, man. I mean, I've, I have nothing but for, for good cops. Those, they're, they're heroes. And the vast majority of cops are good cops and they're heroes. Yeah, I read uh, a, a meme the other day that's very accurate. It said, if you have 130 good cops and 12 cops... You have or 12 cops that are bad. You have 12 bad cops. If you have 130 good cops and 12 bad cops, but the 130 won't do anything about the 12 bad cops, you've got 142 bad cops. Yeah, and, and I think that that's right. I think that's right, too. I, I, I think that it is also true that our standard of what constitutes a bad cop has in some ways become much more stringent. So, for example, there, there are cases that have become national stories in which a cop was labeled a bad cop and he wasn't a bad cop. Right, but there are right. bad cops. For I mean, sure. Look, look. here's a great example. The the cops that pushed down that old man in, in where was it, Buffalo, New York? Is that yep. where it was? Yep. Cracked his skull, yep. That's fucking crazy. I yep. mean, and that's white on white crime, right? I mean, uh, is a, a white guy pushes this old man down and... The most bonkers part about that was the way the president reacted. Like, oh, the way he felt seemed funny. Maybe he was Antifa. Yeah. Maybe he was undercover. Like, there was literally the worst possible reaction <laughs> to watching an elderly senior citizen get pushed down by a young, strong man. You mean President Trump had the worst possible reaction to a thing? To a thing? I can't believe it. Reaction. Yeah. But I mean, unknown. President Trump having bad reactions to look. Things. I'm I'm a big supporter of law enforcement. I have a lot of friends that are cops. I know a lot of friends, a lot of people from martial arts that are cops from the UFC. I know a lot of cops from jiu-jitsu. I knew a lot of cops growing up from all the different martial arts disciplines that I engage in. A lot of cops get involved in that. There's a lot of good cops. There's a lot of good people out there, but it is a fucking insane job. And so many of them have PTSD. For sure. And I But I will say that one of the great myths is that the big threat to the black community in the United States is law enforcement. It's just nonsense. It's not only nonsense, it's counterproductive nonsense. And you're seeing it But it is a threat. Out. It is a threat oftentimes. It is, it is on a data level, an extraordinarily small threat. Mm. Law enforcement law enforcement as a threat to black life on a generalized level is extraordinarily small. The Washington Post database last year showed a grand total of 15 black Americans shot unarmed across the United States in a country of 42 million black people. The problem is when it happens, it doesn't matter what the statistics are. If people see that well, video it. and that video gets shared 200 million times, it looks like there's 200 million white cops killing a black guy. Well, and this is why I say that the media's treatment of this stuff is just horrific. It's not just the media. It's it's social media. Social, social media has blown yes. this stuff up. And it's gotten to the point where if you say that's a horrible situation, that's also an anecdotal situation. Here's some data. If you present the data, it's like, well, you're, are you ignoring people's lived experiences? That's racist. How can you present the data? The data is the data doesn't take into account the full story. No, but it takes into account an awful lot of the story, which is why it's called data. Right, like I, I just don't. Anecdotal evidence is 
evidence of an anecdote. It is not evidence of a broad national trend, nor is it evidence that taking a broad national policy like cutting back funding to the police in a time of rising crime is a good idea because you saw a video on YouTube. Well, I think like, I'm we sorry, both no, agree like, that's a terrible idea. But when you look at these videos, the positive side, if there is any positive side, is that it's they're accountable now. So, uh, and this has been going on forever. If you talk to people that are black that grew up in, in poverty-stricken areas, they will tell you horrific stories about being abused by cops. And I, I think the number is like 25% more likely a, a black person or brown person getting any sort of interaction with a cop is 25% more likely to become physical or for them to be abused. That's that's real. I right. mean, when you look at the statistics of them being killed, yeah, white people get killed more by cops than black people. But there's way more white people. No, no, even on a percentage basis, when it, you have to use the control group of crime. You can't use the control group of raw population. So you have to look at people who are in situations where a deadly inter interaction is likely. There have been multiple studies that show that black people are not in more danger of being shot by cops than, than white people. But it is true that low-level uses of force between cops and black people are worse than low-level uses of force yes. between cops and white people, right? That's the Roland Fryer study. There are a few confounds that have yet to be sort of worked out. I think probably but, white people are less likely to believe that the cop's going to kill them, whereas black people are probably convinced the cop's going to kill them. That, I mean, might, that might play a factor in why there's more white people being killed by cops I mean, that, that may people. very well be true. It may also be that low-level uses of force is maybe uh, force may be disparate if you think that the cop's likely to be a racist, then you might be more likely to resist the cop, and then mm. he might be more likely to rough you up. So it's it's very difficult to, to rub out the confounds there. The one thing that we know for sure is that the greatest threat to black life, just like the greatest threat to white life, is members of your own race killing you. Like if you're talking about actual murders, white people are killed by white people. Black it's people are killed by black people. by people you know mostly. Right. It's, it's intraracial, right? There is, yeah. there, there's very little interracial crime, like black on white or white on black in the United States. There's a lot of intraracial crime, so a lot of white people victimizing white people and black people victimizing black people. And the question is, how do you stop that? This is why... I don't know if you saw this interview. It was kind of an amazing interview. Terry Crews, the actor. Yeah. He was on with, uh, he was on with Don Lemon. Don Lemon. Right. Yeah. And Don Lemon uh, is doing the Black Lives Matter sloganing. And Terry Crews says, well, all lives matter. And Don Lemon ha says, but no, Black Lives Matter doesn't mean all Black Lives Matter. Right. But Terry Crews said all Black Lives Matter. And he said, no, 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 not all Black Lives Matter. Only Black Lives Matter. We're only talking about police brutality right now. And Terry Crews was like, well, why aren't we talking about all Black Lives Matter? Because if Black Lives Matter means you withdraw cops. And withdrawing cops means more dead black people. Then why wouldn't those lives matter too? And this is where the sloganeering gets in the way of right. actual progress. because right. it's where ideology hits facts. Right, exactly. It gets, it gets very weird. It, and Terry Crews was called some terrible names for that. But then a video surfaced of Don Lemon from 2013 chastising black sounds people. Sounds like me on that, right? He sounds like me. Talking he about sounds exactly like you. It's hilarious. Pull your pants up. Get your shit together. You know, like... He's literally saying things like, don't have babies out of wedlock, yes. right? Stay in school, right? which, by the way, again, all of this is commonsensical and true for all races. It is not just black people. Young white people in Appalachia yeah. need to get their shit together. Yes. Everybody needs to get their shit together. But again, young white people in Appalachia are dealing with the same thing. What's around them all the time is crime, people taking pills, everyone having babies out of wedlock, people impoverished, no hope, no, no potential for escape. I mean, that, that is, I agree, but the first thing that has to change, the first, so my dad had a, when, when I was, you know, looking to get married, my dad said the way that you get married is, it's not that you find a girl and then you decide to get married, you decide to get married and then you find a girl. Meaning that you, you have to sort of Jesus make up your mind that you're, in the, that you're in the mode of... This might be where we dis disagree the most. <laughs>
That's a good way to get hooked up with the wrong lady, bro. Well, you make the life decision that you're at that point in your life when you want to make a decision this along those I lines. Think. Get married when you love a girl so much you're willing to do something so fucking stupid <laughs> that you're willing to get married to her. Because getting married to her is Hell is where we're going to get married. Less painful to you than the idea of losing that person. Because I, I look, I think marriage, the good thing about it is that there's financial protection for the family, financial, particularly when there's children involved. I think that's when it's the most important thing. You know, I think financial protection for the children. I, look, I grew up without child support. My father was a deadbeat dad. So I know what it's like to be poor because your father doesn't support you. I think that's horrific. I've seen it in many situations. I've, I know many people that have been the victim of this. It's disgusting. There are a lot of shitty men out there that don't take care of their kids. White, black, Asian, it's universal. That needs, I think that is where the legal definition of marriage and protection of children and protection of the woman who has to take care of these children financially. I think that's significant. When it comes to bringing the state in to somehow or another solidify your love, like, you know, I love you, you love me, but let's bring in a bunch of fucking people we don't know and write it down on paper. That's nonsense. Well, I totally agree with that, obviously. But yes. the, the point that I'm making is that when you want to make a change in your life, you first have to commit that you want to make the change before you make the change. Well, sometimes you meet someone. That's why you want to make a change. No, but some, before then. Okay, so not to get into marital advice here, but like, the, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I have some, you know, I've been married for, for 12 years at this point. Thank God. Very happy marriage. We have three kids. And the, the reason that I say you have to make up your mind that you want to get married before you get married is because you look for a different set of factors then. Mm. If you are, if you are, if you make up your mind you want to get married, what you're going to look for is commonality of values. Who is the person you want to build your life with? Do you share interests? Do you share a, a vision for the future? Whereas if you sort of fall into it, then you can fall in love with somebody you don't share any of these things with, and it makes it a lot more difficult later on to actually build a life on true. that. I don't think I don't think you fall in love with someone that you don't share values with. I think you you think they're hot and you want to fuck them. Well, but people think, mix this stuff up pretty regularly. Well, people are silly. People are indeed silly. People do. People tattoo their eyeballs, Ben. <laughs> they do a lot of dumb shit. <laughs> you live in a world I don't, man. <laughs> well, that's, that's not my world. I don't have any friends with eyeballs tattooed. But people make mistakes with they get attracted to someone physically, and you know, particularly men are, and I guess women too. I'm just not one of them. Are, are, are attracted oftentimes by people they think are sexy but are a bad choice in terms of a life partner. Right. But I don't think you fall in love with those people. They just become How many dudes have married a girl just because they thought they were hot? A there lot. are a lot, a lot, a lot. A lot. But so. men, period. It's not just Jews. Like the drug of sexual attraction is the most sold drug in the United States. It it sells cars, oh, it yeah. sells homes, it's literally it sells lifestyles, pornography. Yeah. yeah but but, but <laughs> yeah. that what what is that? I mean, when you're seeing a woman with a short skirt on and long legs walking like like <laughs> lustfully around a car, what do you what is she what are you saying? You're saying if you buy this car, maybe you can fuck this girl. <laughs> That's what you're saying. Well, it's of course. Like the worst fucking false advertising but, we have in America. But th th this is why when it comes to marriage, I think that it's important to actually put your 
large head before before your other one. Uh, you know, the, Jonathan Haidt in his book, his book called The Happiness Hypothesis. Great book. Uh, terrific, right? Yeah. He, and he talks about this, right? He talks about the fact that people make a very large scale mistake about marriage, which is yes. they think that the passion you feel at the very beginning is what you're going to feel 40 years in. And that's not the way this works. It starts off where your passionate love level for somebody, meaning like lust and how much you want to get them in bed and how much you want to be with them all the time, is at like 100. And your, and your level of kind of committed love Right, that, that, that level of love where you have shared values, that matters to you like this much. Yes. And then over time, after about like two years, the passionate love starts to decline. And by the time you're 60, then you better have shared values because after 60 years, it ain't going to be like it was when you were 20. Right? So you have to have in mind what things are going to be like a few years down the road, which is why I say you should be thinking about what your life together is going to be like before you fall into bed together. That's sound advice. But, well, at, see, that's where I disagree. Because <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with falling into bed with someone that you're not going to live the rest of your life with. That's where you and I probably disagree. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it is a bad idea generally. And again, I think that it is a bad idea because a lot people, of people out there that have had some really good times with those bad that, ideas, Ben uh, Shapiro. And, and it may be that when I die, I look back and that is one of my great regrets, my friend. But let me just say that that I think that the 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 thing that that has been foregone uh, is in my life at least more than made up for by the relationship that I have with my wife. So I can I'll go anecdotal there, yes. but I also will I'll go data driven, which is the longer you live together with somebody before you get married, the higher your divorce rate after. So that, the that higher is, the divorce rate after. Mm -hmm. really? If you if live for a long time with somebody and then you get married, there is a, a higher percentage chance you will end up divorced. That's interesting. I wonder why that is. Probably because of the open window syndrome. Like people feel like, okay, I lived with you for three years. Why aren't we married yet? Why aren't we married mm. yet? Because the guy's like, oh, the window's still oh, open. Oh, so the it's woman like, oh, doesn't there, I have feel nothing. completely committed. So once the guy does sign off, she's like, why didn't you do this five years ago? Oh, well, th there's some of that. And also it, it feels like everybody kind of settled. Right, like if it was, oh, if it was, I'm so committed to this, I want to get married right now. Maybe they just did mushrooms together and realized they really love each other. Again, so different world, man. Like, I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but, but listen, you know, y'all, I have a different experience from everybody else. I dated yeah. my wife for for three months. We got engaged. We were married within ten months. We've been married for twelve years. We're well, both versions when we're married, so we're old school. It clearly yeah. works for you. I've tried to be open minded with basically every kind of way that people live their lives, in including. Like couples that live with other couples and they wife swap, which is. Uh, I feel like that's complicated. I mean, fuck I'll be yeah, honest. It's like, complicated. Like, I always think those people are trying to. I I know people that do that, and I almost universally believe that they are distracting themselves from their life. They're distracting themselves from either their career, they're fulfilling the potential, whether it's as an artist or as a creative person or as a, a person who's pursuing a discipline. I really believe that a lot of times when people complicate their lives with multiple sex partners, and a lot of times what they're doing is they're doing it to, they're distracting themselves. And they don't realize it at the time. They just keep, keeps getting pulled into this direction, pulled in that direction. It's because you don't have a primary focus on something that's very important to you. Yes. You know, and it doesn't mean that you have to be with this person for the rest of your life. It doesn't mean you have to only be with one person. But when I see a guy that is, you know, involved in swinging or something like mm -hmm. that, and, they, and they're balancing a bunch of different gals, trust me, that you that you're gonna waste time, man. Look, you don't. There's not enough time in this life for I mean, that. It's weird to tie this whole conversation together, but it is true that if you want to be good at a thing or be successful at a thing, you have to commit to the thing. Yes. And so that's true whether you're talking marriage, it's true whether you're talking yeah. educational success, or whether you're talking career. And people, you know, making bad decisions because distractions are distractions. Distractions is, are uh, distractions with every discipline. And I think relationships are a discipline in a lot of ways. I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, and, and it is true that, you know, you, you have to 
make the the pre-investment and you have to you have to make the commitment that you're going to continue to invest in the relationship as yes. as time goes on yeah and that, mean, that's, that's that's where people fall off the wagon it's why you see a lot of divorces around year three right mm-hmm. as that passionate love yeah. kind of goes down and the companionate love is the name of the term when the companionate love starts to rise people are like well yeah but the companionate love ain't as much fun as the passionate love but it's, it's not like, it, of course not of course <laughs> that's not just I mean, like, that's just the way it works well that's nature's biological trick the ultimate biological trick is like look when we were monkeys hiding from eagles okay you had to fuck as much as you could and and spread that seed around because you likely only had five or six years on this earth right and you're dead at age 32 yeah you were trying to just get as much of your dna out there as you possibly could that's still inside of us that program is still inside of us and that program is when you see a man and he's with a beautiful woman but another beautiful woman walks by is like looking at her and thinking maybe i can maybe i can do better that's a thing that is programmed into your dna but you have to understand what that is if you're a man and you understand what that is you go oh this is nature and it's dirty little trick Dirty little trick, trying to get me to spread my seed. Brett, Brett Weinstein, he uh, illuminated this in a really interesting way. He was saying to me, what's the difference between beautiful and hot? And I said, uh, I don't know, what is the difference? And he's like, beautiful is someone who you look at and you're like, wow, that person looks beautiful. That's lovely. They have a, a beautiful face or wonderful eyes. They look great. Hot is someone who's wearing like a short skirt and their tits are popping out and you look at that person you go this is an opportunity for to spread my dna with no commitment and that's what that is that's that's the pull and hot that kind of hot is what's sold that cheap quick fast food sort of thing that's what porn is porn is all hot porn is not beautiful it's not i don't think porn's bad either but porn is all hot it's all dirty girls it's all your stepmom your dad's off playing golf it's that kind of shit you know it's it's like you you know you, you you're the pizza guy you show up and two girls well, are having a pillow fight yeah it's exactly that. No, it's, it's your it's your lizard brain versus your prefrontal exactly. cortex exactly yeah, it's it, your monkey brain it, exactly it's that, that monkey that wants to hide from the eagle that's what it is it's huh. like it's like huh, i could just do this real quick and across the board you're gonna you're gonna have a, a better life it may not be a hotter life but you're gonna have a better life if you use the prefrontal cortex a little more often Yes, unless you're Hugh Hefner. I don't know if he he had a good life or not. Uh, he seemed. I know some people who worked with him near the end. Yeah, he seemed kind of miserable. I well, mean, towards like, the end, I'm sure he's miserable. He's an 80 year old guy hanging out with 20 year olds. What the fuck do you have to say <laughs> to these people? Right? It's like you were talking about with O.J. Simpson. O.J. Simpson had a mostly peaceful, f- mostly night. peaceful <laughs> day. Well, his life is mostly annoying. The time that he gets to fuck them, <laughs> when you're 80 years old, you only get to fuck those 24-year-olds for like, well, how long can he last? Uh, I mean, once every six weeks? What right. do you think? Well, he's on probably all kinds of drugs that keep his dick hard, but I would imagine like he couldn't run on a treadmill for 20 minutes, right? Right. At that age. So how is he going to have sex for 20 minutes? So if he, even if he's having sex, like it's probably exhausting. <laughs> and the rest of the day, he's just listening to them talk about TikTok and all kinds of other stupid shit. He's like, he's like, remember when Frank Sinatra God. was here and we were banging everything in yes. sight? And he's like, those were good the good old, old days. days. <laughs> I was wearing a robe. I had a pipe. We were having fun. I had a TV show. I had, a, I had my own channel. He had a Playboy channel for a while. Yeah, I think it's the image of it is way more interesting than the actual act of living that life. Yep, and I think that, again, that, that goes back to 
you know, every bad decision people make is, is tied into this, is yeah. the, the image of things looks way better than the actuality of things. It's true in politics. It's true in love. It's, yeah. true, in, it's true in a lot of things. Yeah. And so you actually have to look at the actuality of things. And You don't want to be an 80-year-old guy living with five 24-year-old girls. You just don't. <laughs> you just don't. <laughs> that, that guy lived in hell, I guarantee you. I bet his life was mostly annoying. But every now and then, while he's having sex with those 24-year-olds, he's probably like, I can't even believe this is real. It's I true. Can't believe, For that 30 seconds. Yeah, I can't believe this perfect body and I get to, like, with this wrinkly sack of rocks that he has <laughs> as a body, he gets to have sex with this beautiful, perfect specimen of a, of a female human being. And then she's like, buy me stuff. And he's like, exactly. oh, God, this is That's the all worst. he has to do. Make me famous. Yeah. Yeah. Worked out great. Huh. Well, you know. It, the grotto, it, the gr by, by the end, it seemed like it was pretty dingy. Dude, I went there. I, I oh, really? hosted okay. a marijuana policy project. Uh, thing there once, <laughs> and uh, of course, sounds of like course. a lot of policy. Sounds, sounds like a lot of policy of happening. But one of the things he did was like we were wandering around. It's the like grotto. an AI summit, you know. It's like when I go to Heritage Foundation. That's what it sounds like right there. <laughs> it, it was it was a fun night. Well, I, what I remember, you know, it was there was a lot of marijuana being smoked. It was quite a blurry evening. But I remember thinking, like, my God, this grotto is so outdated. Like it had like a fucking old ass phone there, and like I'm like, how much? How many people fucked in here? Like how weird is There's this? There's generations of mm -hmm. of human residue in here. Yeah, yeah, and maybe not like the best times either. You know, it's like a, a lot of it is. It just it's what you think it is versus what it is. You know. Yep. Well. You know, let's That's all work on. a lot of life. It is. Yeah. Let's work on, on thinking about what things are rather than yes. what we would like them to be. Because it's hard. accepting reality is, is a hard one. That's accepting a reality is a real tough one. Yeah, that's a problem. It's a problem with advertising too, right? Because advertising shows you. And social media. Yeah. Right? Social media is, well, that's another, the other Jonathan Haidt book, The Coddling of the American Mind, which is amazing. And it it's really illuminates. And um, I'm waiting for my kids to read it. I think maybe this year is a good re time for my 12-year-old. Just to understand that this is this is a real issue with children that are comparing their lives to these. Oh, here's a here's an example. I wanted to show you something. I haven't actually uh, put this up anywhere, but this is actually important because this is so goddamn crazy. I want to show you something. Um, this is something that uh, my daughter did. Uh, this is my daughter is ten. Okay. That's her. Look at that. Oh, my God. That's not a 10-year-old. You're right. It's not a 10-year-old. That's like a 20-year-old right there. Exactly. How's that possible? How's that oh. my 10-year-old daughter? Yeah, she would have watched a YouTube makeup tutorial or something? No, she used a fucking app. Ah. She used an app that turned that her, aged her into... It turned her into a woman. Like, what the fuck is that? So, like, when you're, you're yeah, seeing things thing. like that, what is that? How are they doing that? And who's doing that? So, if you're a girl... And you are overweight, or you have you don't like the structure of your face, or you know whatever is bothering you. You have acne, and you see a girl like that, and she's she's like, can't believe I'm graduating high school. LOL. What do I do now? And you see this. Per that's not even her. Right. This is my ten year old. She doesn't look anything like that. Like she showed. She's like, Daddy, look. This is what I look like. I go. That is not what you look like. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck you just did. That's not what you look like. And so I had her go through this with me and show me what she did. I'm like, show me how you did this. Like, what are you doing? 
She's using some weird app like like was it Chloe Kardashian, the one who changed okay. her whole head? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that. Like, like yeah, this is it's such a recipe for failure. It it's really crazy. is. It's such a recipe for failure because you're always going to fall short of that. And it's one thing to shoot for better. It's another thing to, to shoot for the unobtainable and exactly. then be upset when you can never reach the unobtainable. But it's sick. It's it's sick because you these people don't even look like that. And then you look at that and you go, why don't I look like that? Like they don't even look like that. Right. The amount of people that actually look like that 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 image that I just showed you no, it, is so well, small and it has, so unattainable. And then it has broader societal ramifications because then it turns into stories about, well, okay, well, society doesn't accept me for the way that I am. Society values that look, and that means society is flawed. And it's like, well, how about this? How about, like, people are flawed, society's flawed, you're flawed, do the best you can. Everything is flawed. Everything is flawed. But that's not even really what the problem is. What the problem is, we've created a technology that we're not equipped to manage. We're not equipped to navigate social media. We didn't grow up with it. We didn't evolve with it. This is some it's new It's evolving thing. us now. No, it's yes. true. It's 100% true. I mean, they've yeah. built these apps that are specifically designed to be addictive, right? I mean, they're specifically designed to yes. prey on certain parts of your brain that are you're not really in control of, that are mostly subconscious. And that is scary stuff, for sure. I mean, you can be manipulated by by that stuff. It's You can very, make people aware of it. Easily, yeah. Very easily. Very easily. My kids, my kids aren't getting... Like, I, I seriously will not give them a smartphone until they're probably... Mid-teens, late-teens. Will they get a gun first? Probably. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, feel, I feel like it's better logic. I mean, I'd rather that my 13-year-old know how to shoot than my 13-year-old know how to browse porn. Yes. I think that is good logic. You know, it's really that, that's a real issue with boys. Um, boys that have access instantaneous. I mean, if you give a boy oh a God. phone, you're basically saying, here, little fella, go watch people fuck. Because they're gonna. That's and, the first thing they're gonna do when you're not around. And there know? are all sorts of studies that demonstrate that this leads to relationship and yes. sexual insufficiency later. And it's, mm -hmm. it, it ain't good. It ain't yes. good. I mean, this it's is not, not an argument to ban porn or anything, but like the way that it has integrated into so many really young people's lives. I'm talking like young teens. Right. What percentage of American males do you think are addicted to porn at this point? It's a giant. Percentage. It's got to be fifty percent, right? I, I mean, it's, it's got it's right. got to be extraordinarily high yeah. percentage, and none of that is good for relations between men and women. No. And then you got this weird dynamic where. It used to be that the feminist movement sort of recognized what social conservatives did, that this is pretty objectifying and not necessarily great for women. Now and it's, then like it's like now raising it's, it's, sex workers, which is weird. It is weird. They, they went completely the other direction. And I just thought, in what, what Hugh Hefner fantasy did women decide that all the women at Hugh Hefner's mansion were actually super duper empowered? Like that, that does not seem like the most super empowering lifestyle. Like, you make your choices, man. It's a free country. But my wife's a doctor. And I feel like that's more empowering than like getting screwed by an eighty-year-old for for you know pocket D change. Depends on what kind of car he buys her. <laughs> <laughs> my wife's a doctor; she can get whatever car she damn well pleases. My friend. What happened? What happened that that became like empowerment? Like how did? What? Where was the shift? I think I think there was a shift, and it's it's a shift that's happened throughout American society that that went from the notion that men were acting like pigs and they should stop acting like pigs to what if everybody acted like pigs. And so instead of just saying that standards exist and people don't live up to them, but the standards are actually not a bad thing, we just decided, you know what? We don't want to be hypocrites. We're getting rid of all standards whatsoever. Everybody shouldn't have standards. And if you believe that anybody should have standards, then you're a hypocrite. And when all the standards go, then everything goes. Mm. So like, I actually kind of agree with the original feminist idea that men were kind of acting like sexist jackasses and they should stop that. But the solution to that was not, okay, now women should imitate men at their worst and that's a freer, better society. Like, I just don't think that that's... Again, it's free country. Do what you want on a yeah. legislative level, but as a cultural matter, I don't think that leads to a lot of human happiness. I look at it like se sexual 
televangelists. That's what I look at like pornography like. I think that you should be allowed to rip people off with a really obvious ruse. Like if you're one of those late night people that can put hands on people and raise them from the dead. If you're one of those people, I feel like, God, that's so obvious. It's almost like a good little pitfall to have out there in society to teach people that some folks can be deceptive. And I feel like really manipulative women that trick old guys into marrying them and then take all their money. I feel like that's sexual televangelism. Yeah, that's deserved. Yeah. At a certain point, you're like, okay, I sign well, off on this. Come on, stupid. Yeah. You, you didn't see this coming? You know, it's like, listen, this, a, is a, this is a great country. Yes. I mean, it really is. It like, is. you can make money doing pretty much anything. Like, when people yes. say it's hard to make money in this country, there, there are a lot of people making money a lot of different ways yes. <laughs> in this country. And, I mean, for God's sake, Colin Kaepernick is making millions of dollars kneeling for the national anthem. It feels like – and calling America racist while cashing the check. This is a, this is a great damned country. Well, we're, now we're getting into the weeds. I, I, <laughs> I just wanted to talk about girls ripping dudes off. I know you did, but we, we can go back there, man. That's okay. But the Colin Kaepernick thing. All right. Don't you think that at least some good has come out of him doing that where it sort of raised awareness – for police brutality, just let just put it to the forefront. Let people like let people understand that this is a problem. No, <laughs> not at all. No, 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 because I think that he made a serious error, which is that the most positive movements in American social history have been ones that don't kneel for the flag, but say, in the name of the flag, you should do X. Right. So to, Martin Luther King said, "In the name of the flag, civil rights are necessary." Booker T. Washington said, "In the name of the flag, civil rights are necessary." They didn't say the American flag stands for. Racism and Jim Crow. So the American flag stands for something beyond that. Live up to the American flag. But here's here's my trashing my the American thing. flag is like endemic of police brutality. Is first of all, it's bullshit. But second of all, it's actually divisive on an issue that does not need to be divisive. Like nobody is in favor of police brutality, nor should anyone be. Right. Here's a counterpoint. Why is it trashing the American flag to take a knee? Isn't that in in some ways just another gesture of respect? Like, you're not doing what everybody wants you to do, which is put your hand over your heart, but you're doing something that's also respectful and silent. You're not standing up and going, fuck the American flag, fuck these people. You're actually taking it to another level of respect. You're taking a knee. You're bending the knee. Whether you're doing it for something that you want to talk about later, saying, I'm not going to stand up because this is my way of acknowledging the fact that there have been... Uh, a lot of people that have been mistreated by police and murdered by police, and this is how I do it. This is how I treat racist police killing black people. I, I take that moment to take a knee. Like, how is that so disrespectful? Like, how is that any – it's, it's a, gest, a silent gesture. It's not uniform. Like, it's not doing this thing that everybody else is doing. But you're doing something that's very respectful. You're taking a knee. Um, well – that's certainly not the way that he intended it when he first started that way. I mean, if, if you want to interpret it that you way, know, you can. How do you know what his intention was? Because he literally talked about it. I mean, he but said he that said America he is— wanted to highlight that. He right, wanted... he said, but he said America is a systemically racist country. He wore mm-hmm. socks with pictures of cops as pigs on them. He Did wore... he? Oh, yeah. I didn't know Oh, that. yeah. And I mean, it, Colin Kaepernick is a terrible spokesperson for this movement. <laughs> like, again, like, the, these are— there's many one... people that have taken a knee. And don't you think that—if you just look at the gesture itself, isn't taking a knee— even more respectful than standing with your hand over your heart? I mean, then I imagine millions of us would routinely take a knee for the American flag. I mean, the idea it of... Wouldn't, if that was the thing you had to do, if the, if the idea, but again, and this the idea, guy decided to stand and put his hand over his heart, 
Really? It's just it's, it's sort of a traditional thing where we're arguing over. Well, it, I mean, it isn't the way that it was originally expressed. It, it sort of morphed right. over time right. to the but point where it not, doesn't necessarily mean what he originally meant it to me. It's not like he's going, fuck you, while everybody else has their hand over their heart in silence. But he, He's taking a knee. He, he did mean it as an F you. I mean, th- there's no question that's what he meant it as. He, and it wasn't even over something that actually made sense. Like, you understand during the civil rights movement, when people are raising the black power fist at the Olympics to say, like, we're fighting for civil rights, Jim Crow is still in mm-hmm. operation around the country. Right. Colin Kaepernick taking the knee to symbolize that America's police are systemically brutal and racist is just, it's factually untrue. And to attribute that to the American flag is really kind of nasty. But he's not a statistician, right? So he's looking at things like the Eric Gardner case or, you know, which is a, a terrible one, right? There's, there's cases that you see, like when the guy's just selling loose cigarettes and they're strangling yeah, of them course. in front of the store. It's a terrible case. You see something like that, and that motivates him to do that. And I know what you're saying, that these are anecdotes, and this is, doesn't encompass the full statistics of cops versus black men and how it, what, what is exactly is happening. But that's not his area of expertise anyway. He has... He has an well, I mean, issue. I agree with that. So he making him a spokesperson for a movement where he has no expertise is a weird thing to do. Like, how did he... There are plenty of people who talk about this with actual statistical knowledge. Right, but if you're knowledge. A, a famous person and you, you decide to take this big stand publicly like that, you After you get benched for Blaine Gabbert, yeah. After you get benched for Blaine Gabbert and take millions of bucks from a major corporation currently Who's Blaine, oppressed. Is that the Blaine guy who passed him? Yeah, the, the immortal Blaine Gabbert, the Hall of Famer Blaine Gabbert, who played like no, no, he's, about no Blaine, Blaine, Blaine Gabbert was a, an NFL quarterback who sucked. I mean, he was oh. terrible, and, and they they benched Colin Kaepernick for him. And it was after he got benched that he started doing the kneeling for the like, for the I, American flag. I am which a, is a pretty good gig. Sports broadcaster who knows nothing about sports. <laughs> Listen, people try to talk to me about if you explain Jamie makes fun of me all the if time. If you'd explain it the way that you're explaining it, yeah. meaning we're not living up to the American flag, which is why I'm kneeling. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be arguing with it. Uh-huh. He didn't explain it that way. That, that okay. wasn't that wasn't the way it went down. But it's just him. What do you think about guy? There's certain guys that like lock arms during the American flag. I never problem with that. Okay, locking arms okay, but kneeling's bad. Well, no. Well, the way that he characterized his kneeling was bad. Okay, meaning him. like I'm, But what about other people that kneel? If they characterize it differently, it means a different thing. Okay, right. I mean, I see what you're saying. Meaning like what it originally was is what it was. I'm right. not going to retcon what right. he meant at the time. He was the first to do it, right? Right. Yeah. And then he and then he made millions of dollars for his bravery. Again, I, I don't think it takes a whole hell of a lot of bravery to be benched for Blaine Gabbert, take a knee, make millions of bucks from Nike. I wish while I knew this Blaine Gabbert fellow was. Terrible QB rating is all you really <laughs> need to know. Not, not a good quarterback is the answer. So is Colin Kaepernick, I mean, I don't, as a, an athlete, is he not good? Like He's a terrific athlete. He's just not a very good quarterback. Okay. So, I mean, he, he had one fantastic season. He led the, the 49ers to the Super Bowl. And then, like, a lot of kind of one-hit wonders in sports, people kind of figured him out season two. And his QB rating started to decline. But, I mean, look, bottom line is that the making him the spokesperson of a movement where he really – I don't like the idea that you are going to attribute to all of America a sin that is, number one, anecdotal in nature, and number two, cannot be attributed to America's highest ideals. You're doing it wrong. If you want to fight police brutality, say America is not living up to her promises, say that the promise of America – like, there is a way to conv- – Every successful social movement in American history has done this. The gay rights movement did this. The gay rights movement said, listen, everybody in America has been guaranteed a certain level of freedom. And we're not being guaranteed that level of freedom. Right? The freedom to pursue happiness is not being guaranteed to us. We're just asking that we be left alone. Leave us alone. And it took time, but most Americans came around to that perspective. The, the same thing holds true on race. The same thing holds true on police brutality. If well, you make an invocation and you say to Americans, as Americans, I know that over time my fellow Americans are going to come to realize that they need to live in accordance with the fundamental principles that founded the country, mm-hmm. that's unifying. To say that the American flag is inherently non-unifying is, is really 
bad. Like to the point where you now have college campuses where if you fly an American flag, there, there have been cases where people are asked to take it down because it's too divisive. Like that. That seems that, crazy. That's, that, that's that does seem crazy. When you say it's anecdotal that you know, you know, he's reacting to something that's anecdotal, but there's many of those anecdotes, and, and you see them over and over again. The problem is they're so they're they're so prevalent. There's so many videos. So this my is my friend Joe Schilling is a kickboxer, and his entire Instagram has been dedicated to bad cops over the last few mm -hmm. months, just showing all these videos of bad cops. I mean, yes, it's anecdotal, but goddamn, there's a lot of anecdotes. Well, there are 330 million police interactions every year. So yes. yeah, I mean that's. The now, what was the initial interaction that? What was his motivation to do that? Was there an, a, a single instance of police brutality that caused him to do that? I'm trying to remember which season he did this. This would have been three, four years ago. So I'm, I'm trying to remember. I don't think it was the Michael Brown situation because I remember there were protests in the NFL over Michael Brown, mm -hmm. right? Which was actually a bad anecdote. Like that was a bad one for people to pick. People were doing the hands up, don't shoot. That didn't actually happen. Right. He actually tried to grab the gun from the cop. He the gun went yeah. off in the car. He charged the cop by witness yeah. testimony. All the witnesses were black. You know the the like, Eric Gardner one is much cleaner, right? Well, the, the Eric Gardner one is cleaner in terms of police brutality. It's not super clean in terms of racism or even cause of death. So this is one of the problems. Yes, police it, brutality. Police brutality, for sure. Yes. It's kind of like, it's actually, you know, I'm warning people now that what happens in the George Floyd case with Derek Chauvin, like they should be warned up front. I want this police officer punished. I think everyone wants the police officer punished. The defense is going to make a case that the police officer is not responsible for George Floyd's death in exactly the same way that the New York police officers made the case that they were not responsible for Eric Garner's death. And the, the autopsy, the, the initial autopsy tends to support that. So what that suggest is not that Derek Chauvin is good or clean or decent, but if you're going to charge him with murder, that's that's a hard charge to make, just on a legal level. So I'm warning people now of that because the the, move, the next move will be, obviously the system is racist if Derek Chauvin doesn't get convicted of first degree murder. It's going to be very hard to convict him. I think you're charging him with second. It's going to be very difficult to convict well, him with second. he has to be charged with second, right? Because it first would mean premeditated. Right. Third. Well, he was charged with third originally, and then Keith Ellison, the AG over there, elevated it to second degree. I think that's very difficult to make the case for, for second degree murder. What were you pulling up, Jamie? You had something you want to say? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> uh, I had the part of when this actually started in 2016. He started sitting. Why does keep doing that? He started by sitting, and people started getting video of him sitting as the <clears> preseason <throat> was starting. So he then talked to a teammate. They discussed kneeling was the best thing for him to do at the time. Um, do you remember? Do you know which incident kind of kicked it off? That's why I was going to play yeah. the video of it. That's why I had here the actual first video of him talking about him donating a million dollars to the local community. I think he had guns drawn on him, which is probably what started. Mm, okay. But here's him talking about that. And I've been very blessed to be in this position and be able to make the kind of money I do. And I have to help these people. I have to help these communities. It's not right that they're not put in the position to succeed or given those opportunities to succeed. And as far as taking a knee tonight, uh, Eric, as well as myself, had a long conversation with Nate Boyer, who is a military vet. And we were talking to him about how can we get the message back on track and not take away from the military, not take away from pride in our country, but keep the focus on what the issues really are. And as we talked about it, we came up with taking the knee uh, because there are issues that still need to be addressed. And 
it was also a way to try to show more respect to the men and women that fight for this country. Okay, so that's better, obviously. That's, hey, scroll, but scroll, that's him. Scroll down for a second, because I think but that that's his. That's 2016. So that's here's the, 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 the first look at this one. Okay, look at the one right below that. Okay, <clears> this is the one I'm talking okay, about. Okay, I'm not going to stand up to show pride in a flag for a country that oppresses black people and people of color. To that's me, that's the sentence that, right there. So that's a different. That, the video that's we a different just watched center. was. Yeah four or five days after these statements were made. So he said he changed, after talking to someone, he made changes oh, to what was going okay. on. Right. So okay. the initial explanation is the one that I was talking about. Okay, so he revised his feelings on it. And then, well, that's not seems to my, super he reasonable. He it started with this. He, Kaepernick had guns drawn on him by cops for being one of the only black guys in his town. Yeah, that seems super reasonable, what he said there, about having The second take after talking about military, yeah, that's, that's or, better. Or military, rather, yeah. Although he, he recently released a, a video <clears throat> that sort of goes back to the original explanation, suggesting that America is endemically and systemically racist, which, okay. is, which is a problem. That's a hot take right now. It's good. It's very popular. Yeah, no, that's, that's the big one. Yeah. That's the big one. Yeah. Well, how do you think we get back on track? How, how does how do we find balance? I always hope that things go really far in one direction and then really far in the other direction and sort of. Listen, I'm, I, hope I, we, I, I end up in the same place I always end up, which is we got to learn to leave each other the f alone. Mm -hmm. I mean, seriously, like that's that's the only way this is going to work because yeah. we either have to decide we want to share a country and live together with each other, or we have to decide we don't. Yeah. If we want to live together and share a country, then we have to stop basically making crazy demands of one another. You know, this is what the cancel culture is all about, but we we got we got to stop that. We got to yeah. recognize that people may not agree with you. People may do things differently than you, and that's okay. Like as much as I dislike what Colin Kaepernick's doing, I don't think that he should be blackballed from the NFL. If I were an NFL owner, by the way, I'd hire him in a second. You know the kind of press I'd get for hiring Colin Kaepernick? I'd make a <laughs> boatload off of Colin Kaepernick. That's a great deal. Like, so how come people aren't doing it? Um, I mean, I assume because he's not that great a quarterback. I mean, like if if he were Tom Brady, I think that he would, you know, be getting a contract. He also, I mean, there was that whole situation last year with Kaepernick where he where he wanted to do tryouts for the NFL, and then he sort of broke the NFL's rules in doing the tryouts, and he wanted it filmed in a certain way and all this sort of stuff. But like, mm. I, I'd hire him as a backup quarterback because here's the thing. You're either going to please one half of the population or please the other. Either he's amazing, in which case you've got a winning team and a great story, or he gets sacked every other down, in which case half the country cheers. So Controversy See, sells. Yeah, anyway. that's for sure. Yeah. But how do we, uh, I mean, this is probably one of the most racially divisive times in my memory, in my lifetime. I, I don't remember things being, everybody's worried about everything being racist. Every single thing that anyone does, syrup is racist, pancakes are racist. Oh, it's, it's evolved into all the, you saw this Trader Joe's story, right? You were telling me earlier. It's wild. So Trader Joe's is called Trader Joe's, right? Which is not racist, I guess, but apparently they, they have Mexican products that they were calling Trader Jose's. <laughs> and some bored person in their basement decided to create a petition that got signed by some 2,400 other bored people about why it shouldn't be called Trader Jose's because that's racist. Mm -hmm. So apparently it's cultural appropriation if you're Trader Joe's and you make a burrito. But if you call it Trader Jose's, then that's, I think they called it exoticizing Mexican exoticizing? people. Exoticizing? Yeah, it's making them exotic and other. <sighs> So Trader Joe's pulled it down. Trader Joe's is going to is going to not it use is. this anymore. 17-year-old called out 17-year-old <laughs> called out Trader Joe's. Now the chain is dropping offensive labeling. Jose, offensive to whom? Who, who like how many Hispanics were, were picketing outside Trader Joe's being, "Oh, now that I saw that Trader Jose beer." Right. Listen, I'm Italian. Do you think Papa Gino's is that really, you know, I mean, is that really uh, an Italian who made that company? Like how many how many different like 
different pizza companies and all these not I would run love to by see, Italians at all. Honestly, God, I'd love to see the racial breakdown of the people who signed this petition. I would bet 90% <laughs> of them are white. Yeah, 90%, right? White, live in the suburbs, hate their parents. Yeah. <laughs> what did you say? What was the word they used for it? Exoticizing. Exoticizing. Think, said, yeah. Oh, my God. That is so adorable. Exoticizing. I was talking to you about um, Rick Bayless, who's a, a famous chef of Mexican cuisine, who is a white man who who adores Mexican food. I mean, I love the guy. I love listening to his videos. I love Mexican food. So watching this guy's videos, it's like I love someone who's really into something. You know, I just get, I get a kick out of even like there's a guy I used to watch on PBS that would make furniture with um, ancient tools. Like he'd use like like ancient like. Um, uh, different old timey saws and mm -hmm. chisels and shit, and he would make these w wooden chairs and tables and furniture. This is called I the Amish, right? I mean, but, but he kind of looked like that. But he was he was really dressed like an old timey guy, and he had this old timey shop, and he would make this stuff. And I loved watching him. And I don't give a fuck about his shitty furniture. <laughs> I don't. But what I cared about was the fact that this guy was really passionate about his thing, and it was very attractive to me. And I feel the same way when I watch this guy Rick Bayless talk about Mexican cuisine. He loves it. He takes regular trips to Mexico and learns how to cook these dishes in the traditional way and then talks about it with this great passion. But the guy just got shit all over. They were just like, you're culturally appropriating. You shouldn't be doing this. You're a okay, white man. So let me just say this generally. Cultural appropriation is a bunch of horseshit. And horseshit. the reason it's a bunch of horseshit is because, you know what's the best in life? All the things that are good from ever, everybody else's yes. culture. Like the Celebrate reason people live them. in major cities is yes. to go to all the different restaurants from all of the different cultures. Yes. Like why is cultural, I, I'm so confused as to why cultural appropriation is bad. Cultural appropriation is the greatest thing that has ever happened to planet Earth. Yes. If we were all siloed off into our own little cultures, you know how much things would suck? It yes. would just be terrible. So th this kind of, yeah, this kind of stuff is just crazy. It drives but, me nuts. I, look, I grew up teaching Taekwondo, which is a Korean martial art. I learned to count in Korean. I had to speak all the techniques in Korean. Because you hate Koreans. That's the, clearly, I mean, that's clearly the problem. I here. culturally appropriate the shit out of my childhood. Yeah, exactly. It's this is all this is all crazy, and there's no there's no apparent end to it. Like there's no limiting no, principle. No, there's no limit. There's I, they, no limit. I read a column this morning by somebody. I think it was in the Washington Post, saying that we should just keep changing the name of everything. Like yes. literally for, forever. We should just keep changing the name of everything. She said, you know, there was this town and I, I think I found a non-offensive name for the town. But if I found something else that was offensive like three years from now, we should change the name of the town. And she thought, okay, so we are living in 1984, right? Orwell talked about renaming everything. Man, because people will find a way. They'll find a way to be mad. Well, here, here's, my, here's my controversial <laughs> statement, okay? Okay. If you, uh, my controversial statement is if you have to go this far to find things to be offended over, there's not that much to be offended over. If you have to get go so far that you have to be offended by Trader Jose's, you got nothing going on in your life. There's a dramatic demand for being offended and acting like a victim. And they're just things like there are actual victims in this country. Yes. And internationally, they're seriously actual victims. Yeah. But we don't focus on any of those folks, right? No. We focus instead on like the dumbest bullcrap you ever heard. You know, about about renaming libraries and listen, I'm fine with you wanna move you wanna take a Confederate statue and put it in a museum? Fine. I mean those guys were jerks. They're they're terrible people. Fine, go yes. go for it. But like you're talking about we're gonna fix the world by renaming Washington DC because Washington was bad. It's like, what did you do lately? Did you do what Washington did? Like I understand we don't put up statues to people for all the bad crap they did. Martin Luther King had a real bad record with the ladies. Okay, we don't put up statues to Martin Luther King because we are saying he was great with, with women. I think everybody was bad with women back then. Everyone is how, bad, period. Human beings suck. Okay, so either get rid of all the statues or well, recognize that human beings suck. Worse, obviously. For some sure. And there worse. are gradations of suck. But... Do you remember back when they were tearing down those Civil War statues and, and Trump 
in all of his wisdom. It's like, what are they going to do next? What about Lincoln? What about uh, they're going to take down George Washington? And everybody's like, oh, he's so crazy. Meanwhile, that's exactly what they were doing. That was what they were doing. The, what I mean, in Chicago, well, that, actually, that was actually Christopher Columbus, who was legitimately a bad guy. He, he was, I mean, yes. Yeah. Also, everyone was bad. Like, literally all the people were like, Enslavement, yeah. brutal, brutal treatment of people. Right. Fairly but, commonplace. But do you think it's there's an argument to be said that maybe we shouldn't celebrate those bad people anymore that we know what they – now that we know what they really were Not really. About. I think we should just talk about the bad people. Like right. I don't think we're the only good people in history. Right. I think, think they this... should have a statue of Genghis Khan? I don't know. What did Genghis Khan do that was good, that had good results? Well, he opened up trade to China. Okay, if you want to put up a trade to China <laughs> statue for Genghis Khan at the Trade Federation. 10% of the population. Uh, yeah, that – True enough, and, yeah. and what impregnated the other ten percent yeah, or something? It's he some, something wild. Everybody. He, he literally <laughs> raped his way through Asia. The, the, the point of a Christopher Columbus statue is not all the bad things he did to the Arawaks. The point of a Christopher Columbus statue is we are glad that Western civilization came to the Western Hemisphere. I kind of agree with that principle. Yeah, I think I, it is a good thing that Western civilization came to the Western Hemisphere. And yes, there was a lot of brutality, and yes, there was a lot of cruelty, and we should talk about all those things. But this notion that the only cruelty that has ever existed in human history came at the behest of Western civilization, that everything was a Rousseauian paradise before Christopher Columbus came, that Christopher Columbus doesn't deserve a statue in specific, that we should, that, that, like, either make the argument that everybody was a product of their time and therefore no one deserves a statue, or recognize that when there's a statue of Christopher Columbus, we are not honoring how he treated the Arawaks. No one ever thought that we'd put up a statue to Christopher Columbus because he was really sweet to the natives on the other end of that Right, that nobody's. So, what is the purpose of a statue? Like, when you have a Christopher Columbus statue, like, what is the purpose of that statue? We know, we all know who he is. We all know what he did. Why do we have an an enormous bronze version of him in the middle of a park? I mean, presumably to say that Western civilization arriving here was a good thing, well, right? A, or to have the conversation. I mean, yeah, that's that's it's a monument to an historical event, right? Right. Or na listen, Columbia University is named after Columbus, right? The idea of America as Columbia, right, which was an alternative name for America, was after Columbus because he was a discoverer. Well, that's a weird one, right? We're, we're named after Amerigo Vespucci, who nobody knows who the fuck that guy is. <laughs> yeah, he's been lost in the time. <laughs> he's totally been lost. But, but there is this idea yeah. that has settled in that we – and it's really of high irritation to me that we are now the only good people who have ever lived. Everyone who came before us was just a horrible person, and we are the only good humans who have ever – like – isn't the world lucky to have us? We're the only people who have ever lived who are completely sinless. And we can look from our perch at the top of morality at everyone who came before us and say that those people were all garbage compared to us. Now, there were people who were garbage compared to us. But I really don't think that Washington was among the people who you can say was garbage compared to you. Like, I don't think that you living in 1770 are a better person than George Washington. I think you stand atop the legacy that George Washington helped build. Well, I have news for those people that were trying to break into Amazon Go. History is going to look back at you like you're a piece of shit. The people in the future that would never shatter property and never spray paint things and, 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 and never attack people for filming things with their cell phones, they're going to look back at these violent actions and they're going to look back and they're not going to be kind. They're, they're the same way. I mean, it's every single generation, hopefully, if society doesn't implode, we don't have nuclear war, every single generation is going to learn from the mistakes of the past and hopefully improve. That's what we're hoping for. And we should be happy that we can look back on a lot of these people and say, we understand now how deeply flawed they were and what was wrong with George Washington or what's, what was wrong with Thomas Jefferson, although he did, 
you know, draft the Declaration of Independence. He was a slave owner. And this is one of the contradictions of our society and our culture. That and we, fathered we, kids with yes, a slave. I mean, yes yes, yes, yes. I mean, you don't have to shortchange the yes. evils of human beings in order to recognize either the direction of American history or recognize the good yes. things about people. People are a little more complex than I think we want to think of them yes, as. And, it's, and this is one of the arenas that this sort of gets back to the point about the system. If you recognize that human beings are capable of great sin and also capable of doing great things, what you really want is a system that, that of checks and balances that prevents people from gaining too much power to hurt other people. And what you also want to recognize is that the flaws of human beings are not necessarily the flaws of the system, and that just changing the system is not going to change the underlying flaws of human beings, which means you actually have to think through the policies that you're promulgating before you implement them. Clearly, if you say this, you're not paying attention to what happened at Chaz or CHOP. Because they, they had it nailed. It was paradise for a short period of time. That's one of my favorite stories great. of this year. Because these people basically took over this gigantic chunk of Seattle and said, we're going to show you how it's done. They wind up being the police. They wind up beating the fuck out of people who did anything they didn't want them to do, including film things. They wind up, see, you saw murder. You saw massive graffiti. You certainly saw borders. There were borders put up. They kept cops from coming in. They kept a lot of people from coming in. Beat up journalists. They beat yep. up journalists. They uh, took over private property. So they appropriated private property. These are not buildings they built. They didn't make a deal. They didn't barter. They didn't have some sort of a, a beautiful, mutually beneficial agreement with these people that own these buildings. No, fuck you. They took them over. They took them over and started spray painting shit all over them. It's crazy. But it, it shows you, like, your childlike childlike idea of what you can do that's better you don't take in that you don't really understand that the founding fathers really did put into play into place all these checks and balances to keep someone from abusing power and as much as trump would like to overcome all that you see time and time again he's a great example in, in many ways, of how this system really is beautifully engineered from 300 fucking years because ago. They, because crazy. the founders didn't understand the, the problem of human nature, which is people want power and they want to hurt other people very often. And you still need government in order to do things, but there better be broad scale agreement on the things you want to do, or a, a small majority of people can really hurt a, a huge minority of people, right? This is what they call tyranny of the mob, right? They, yeah. they, they, were, they were much afraid of this. And and that's stuff that is worth remembering. You know, the, the tearing down that system because you want to build something more beautiful. If it looks like Chaz or Chop, that ain't a thing. What's well, this and, idealistic? They have blinders on. They have this this narrow tunnel vision view of what they think this utopian future could be. I think they think that human beings are going to be fundamentally transformed by a different system. Yeah. So they look at the problems. One of the biggest problems we have in American politics is the myopia with which we look at the United States. So. When you're dating somebody, it's very easy to see all the problems with the person you're dating. When you're married to someone, it's certainly easy for my wife to see all the problems with me, and there are plenty. But when she looks at all the other people, then she's like, okay, well, he's less flawed than the others, right? When you look at the United States, it's very easy to see all the different flaws in the United States because, of course, they exist. This is a society filled with humans, 330 million of them. But when you look abroad and you look at other examples of civilizations over time, and then you look back at the United States, you think maybe the system isn't quite that bad because the fact is that for all the problems we got, the biggest problems that humanity faces and has faced are not happening in the United States. They're happening everywhere else. China right now is shipping Uyghur Muslims on trains after shaving their heads to concentration camps where they are being forcibly sterilized. There are actual problems on planet Earth. That is not to say there aren't problems in the United States, but they are not the same in terms of degree, and they are not the same in terms of scope. And to pretend that the system of the United States needs to be ripped down from the inside 
and that if you build a beautiful new system that you will shape humanity such that we are all saints and no sinners, you're out of your mind. I agree with you. And it's, it's the Uyghur situation is shockingly undercovered. Oh, my God. Well, it, just, it demonstrates that when people said never again, they were full of crap. They're just full of crap. I mean, it's just not true. I mean, the, the, this is one area where the United States should absolutely be taking a leading role. It is obvious that China is a nefarious actor. China has been stealing our technology. China is att- the Chinese government is attempting to extend its rule of tyranny over Hong Kong. They just subjected 7.5 million people to their direct tyranny in violation of treaty. And the response has basically been muted from the Western world. And did you see that, did you see that video of the, uh, the Chinese ambassador in Britain being asked on the BBC about that tape? No, I didn't. It's fantastic. So the, the BBC interviewer shows him the tape of the people being pushed onto trains, right? And he says, what is this? And the Chinese ambassador says, I can't see it. I'm not sure what you're talking about. He's literally saying that the screen is huge. It's right behind him. Like he's looking right at it. And he acts as though he can't see it. And then he starts talking about the natural beauty of the region, right? He, oh. he, 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 won't, he won't deal with it. He won't, exp- he won't explain what it is. And the rest of the world is just like, well, you know, what? Ha-? this is where, you know, in, in the sporting world, the the whole the, the story that's undercovered in the sporting world is the is the blowback on that the NBA gave to Daryl Morey the the Houston Rockets GM for saying free Hong Kong right. right you can't even get anybody in the NBA to condemn China while China's subjecting a million Uyghurs to abject slavery Mark Cuban just had an exchange with uh, Ted Cruz the other day where where he was going after Cruz for something and Cruz said well just you know he he questioned Cruz Cruz's balls or something and and Cruz came back at him and said well do you have the balls to condemn China and Cuban said something like well, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to get involved in the internal affairs of another country. And I thought, well, that's that is not an internal affairs question. It's one thing to say I don't want to get involved in the tax rates of other countries. It's another thing to say, shaving people's heads, shipping them on trains to concentration camps where you force them into labor and or sterilize them. That seems like not an internal issue that you're not allowed to criticize, really. Yeah, that's a big one. But the the China thing is so crazy because so many. So many business interests have this connection with them, and so much of the the money that they generate is because of China. I mean, the NBA films. There's a, a, a there's so much, so much of our culture that kowtows to China. We're so connected to them, and that's one of the things that we really found out from this pandemic is how many things are built there, how much of our medicine, how much we rely on China. It also demonstrates the lie of the idea that if you trade with somebody, then they're going to liberalize. Yeah, right? that was that was something that was pushed over the last 30, 40 years real hard, which is. We'll help them out economically. We'll have mutual trade. It'll be good for both of us. And they'll liberalize because once they realize it's good to be part of the world economy, then they won't be tyrants anymore. And instead, they just took all the chips off the table and said, no, actually, I'm going to double down on this and we're going to get more tyrannical, not less. I mean, she is the most powerful Chinese leader since Mao. It's incredible. We don't have much time. You you have a heart out in one minute. I just want to know, what, what do you think goes down in November? And how hopeful are you for the future? Because it seems to me like we're fucked no matter who wins. Because the chaos that we're seeing, the civil unrest that we're seeing, it's going to either accelerate or, 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 or spread one way or the other. So I think that if we're going to hold together, we have to make a decision. Either fundamentally the American system is good but flawed and we need to work on the flaws within the system. Or fundamentally the American system sucks and was rooted in slavery and bigotry and we need to rip down the entire system. The latter is not really a, a great recipe. So we can have normal political arguments within the former or the country is toast. As far as what goes down in November, look, right now the polling data says Trump gets skunked. I mean, right now the polling data has got Biden up 10, 12 points in the polls. But didn't the polling data in 2016 say that Hillary was going to steamroll? Uh, on the national data, not so, uh, on the national data, they were kind of right. So on the national data, the final real clear politics poll average was like three points. Hillary won by three points in the popular vote. The state polls were really, were, were really wrong, particularly in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania. On this one, because Trump is 
universally losing in like all the swing states and is in spitting distance in Texas, he's got a lot of ground to make up right now. Listen, Biden is running almost the ideal campaign. He's not alive. He's a not alive person. And as it turns out, beating a dead horse is actually kind of tough, right? He's like, <laughs> like the, the, because he's not threatening. He's fundamentally non-threatening. You look at Biden and do you feel threatened by Biden? I don't feel threatened by Biden. The man's not alive. You can't threaten me with a corpse, right? And so, and so Trump, who is innately volatile and looking for something to kind of attack- Is his own worst enemy. Is his own worst enemy. Yeah. Like with Hillary, the untold story of 2016 is that Trump didn't win, Hillary lost. Yeah. People hated Hillary's guts. And the stat that proves it is that people who hated both Trump and Hillary broke for Trump pretty heavily. Yeah. Right now, people who don't like either Biden or Trump are breaking nearly universally for Biden because Trump is so off-putting. And he, you know, I've said for a long time, politics is about the art of making it hard to vote for your opponent and easy to vote for you. And Trump is fairly good at number one, and he is awful. He is god awful at number two. Making it easy to vote for him—that's that, that's a toughie. That's well a toughie. said. Well said. Thank you, Ben Shapiro. Always a good time, man. I good really to see enjoy, you, dude. Always enjoy seeing you. All right, that's it. Bye, everybody. That was great. Awesome. Thank you.